Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical, underage sale prohibited. Introducing Zone Nicotine Pouches, the perfect balance of unparalleled comfort, longer-lasting flavor, and nicotine that satisfies. Whether you're zoning in during the race or zoning out after a tough day at work, Zone gets you there faster and keeps you there longer. Available in seven flavors and in six and nine milligram strengths. Find Zone at zonepouches.com and retailers near you. Own your Zone with Zone Nicotine Pouches. The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. Dale Jarrett is going to win the Daytona 500. So nobody was talking. It was all in my hands as to what I needed to do. Wallace spins. Wallace's car goes on its nose. It went in the air, hit the ground, then flew back up, and I flew over the start-finish line. The Motor Racing Network presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. Mark Martin riding an unbelievable winning streak. I didn't realize when I won it because we were on such a roll. It was 10 years or 15 probably before I realized that I had won the Southern 500. The race winner, Rusty Wallace, and the championship driver, Dale Earnhardt, each carrying flags honoring their fallen friends, Alan Kulwicki and Davey Allison. Davey and Alan Kulwicki were on everybody's mind all year long, right to the very end. And we always had those flags in our truck. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome to part six of MRN Presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. In this episode, we'll relive the midpoint of the 93 season, Michigan, Daytona, and the inaugural cup race at New Hampshire International Speedway. As the summer months began, temperatures on and off the track were heating up to a boiling point. As practice unfolded at Michigan, Mark Martin and Dale Earnhardt ratcheted up the thermostat, tangling on the super speedway. For the last couple of weeks, there have been a lot of cars have been torn up in practice and during the race. Where they didn't even wait till race time this time. Dale Earnhardt and Mark Martin had a problem here yesterday, got together in one of the corners, tore up both their cars. Dale was a, was, was a gamey guy. He liked messing with people, and he had a lot of respect for me. But I think that we were really showing a lot of strength that year, and he was probably bored. And before Michigan, uh, you know, several races before Michigan, he had decided, we'll see how much he'll take. So Dale would go out and, you know, here again, it's all about air on the right rear. When people don't think that, you know, people didn't talk about that in 93. I knew about it because I was running cars. I was making downforce and I was running cars free on mile and a half racetracks. So I knew I knew about this phenomenon all the way back in 93. And Dale, he would wait for me in practice. And when when he would, then when I'd catch him, he'd go. And he'd get on the outside of me and he'd just hang there. You know, and it would piss me off because I just wanted to be left alone. When I went out and practiced, I did not want to run with anybody. I wanted to run on clean racetrack because I'm not talking about Daytona Talladega. I'm talking about everywhere else. Because I wanted to set my car up and focus on one thing. My car turning in the middle of the corner and making it the best it could be. Because if I did that, when you put it in a pack of cars, it would still be better than it would have been if I'd not done that. 
or if I had to practice in a pack of cars when it was like a swarm of bees. So I worked, I liked to work on my race car and set it up for the race, running by myself. He knew it. And he also knew that when he got on the outside of me, that it was hard for me. And he wanted to put me in a crippled position and just dig me. And so, you know, week in and week out, he did this. You know, and I'm out in practice on Michigan, minding my own dang business, and here he is waiting on me. And he just wanted to, you know, because it's going to be worse at Michigan because it's two miles and flat. And he just wants to do that stuff. So I'm like, okay, dog, let me switch the table on you. And I got on the outside of him. Well, he'd been doing it to me all these weeks, and I ain't never, you know, lost it. I ain't never got into anything. Well, he wipes us out. And it pissed me off because that's Dale Earnhardt. Now, he knows better than that, and he's better than that. And he tore up my fastest race car. I was thrilled with my race car, and he tore it up because he's pig-headed. He shouldn't have even been messing with me in the first place. And so I flipped the script on him, and what does he do? Wipe us out. Every other week, I just, you know, I'd back off and let him mess with me and struggle with my car loose on the inside, whatever. And so, yeah, I was mad. I was mad. I was real mad. And then we went the next week, I think we went to Loudoun, and he waited for me. And I seen him in practice. There he is up there. He's waiting on me. And it's like, as soon as I caught him, I just put, put it to him. And, uh, you know, I didn't wreck him, but I put it to him because I'm done. And I heard from a reliable source that he stepped out of the car, come in off the racetrack, step out of the car and grinned and said, I think Mark's had enough. He's just messing with me. So that's what he did. See, but I didn't cry about it. I didn't talk in the media about it. I I handled it man to man, face to face. When I got out of my wreck race car, I went down there and saw him. I didn't talk to the... I wouldn't talk about it when they run up to the TV cameras and want to talk about it. I ain't talking about that. Not running my mouth. He did not like that. And I didn't think that's the way a man handles his business. A man handles his business face-to-face, one-on-one. And I handled my... You know, I handled it with him. I went and saw... You know, talked to him. It didn't matter. Next week, he start, you know, started that again. And it's like, okay. You know, and, and I said... I, was, I wasn't in good shape on the points, and he was. If he won't play these games, just go on and cost himself a championship. Dale Earnhardt's crew chief, Andy Petrie. Well, you know, Mark Martin's always the fastest guy on the racetrack, right? And so we're, we're always having to race with him, and, and Dale would always figure out a way to get in his head. He's always just pushing his buttons, trying to figure out how to, you know, rattle him. Uh, so we're, we're doing just a, a regular practice session at Michigan, uh, probably on Saturday morning. And Dale's out there racing like it's the last lap of the race. And he gets up beside Mark, gets sideways, and was just really trying to rattle his cage, so to speak. But he ends up spinning both of them out. Uh, they don't hit anything much but each other. And so, but it dinged up both cars. Then we're in the garage area fixing both of them, kind of in another part of the garage where we were kind of near each other. Dale goes over to Mark trying to patch things up a little bit, right? Mark had had enough. He finally, he just, he, I think he'd end up cussing Dale out and just said, get away from me. I don't want to talk about it. I want to see you. Just get away. So Dale comes over and I said, what did Mark say? He said, he wouldn't talk to me. So Mark goes on to win four races in a row after that. And I remember after the fourth one in a row, we, I met Dale at the gas pumps because we finished in the top five. And I re- reached in the window and I told Dale, I said, please don't piss that guy off again. <laughs> 
racing, man. We got to race him every week. <laughs> We're better off racing when he's not mad. You know, Andy was fun. And I liked Andy, and he, he treated me with respect, but he was also the enemy. <laughs> you know? So uh, I, I really did like Andy a lot and, and enjoyed him. But uh, I think Andy wanted to be a peacemaker, and I recognized that. And I, I didn't... He want to come talk to me. I didn't want no peace. I didn't want peace. I'm mad, and you know, feel like it's revenge time now. You know, because he put me in compromising positions multiple times, and and nothing happened. I put him in a compromising position back one time, and he wipes us out. The dust-up between Mark Martin and Dale Earnhardt wasn't the only Michigan practice mishap. Jeff Gordon also crashed, wrecking the primary Hendrick Motorsports Chevy as he held the throttle wide open around the two-mile layout. Jeff Gordon's crew chief, Ray Everham. Well, we were pretty quick, and he, uh, man, he made it through one and two wide open. This is 1993, so with aluminum, you know, and... and He's flying and went down into turn three and never cracked the throttle. And in the middle of three and four, I saw it step out, starts to spin around, and, man, he hits the fence. And he, he keyed the radio, and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, guys. And we hear tires blowing out from him spinning around and everything. And, and he said, I just don't know what happened. I just don't know what happened. I just, you know, spun out. So when he came in, he's he, he's he's just, man, I don't know what happened. I don't understand why I spun out. I never spun out. I don't understand. So I said to him, look, let's just go through some simple math here. I said, what RPM will you turn in when you crashed? And he's like, I don't know. Well, the tack was still stuck at like, you know, at that time, 8,200 or something. I said, how big are the rear tires on this car? He said, I don't know. I said, well, they're, you know, 87 inches. And I forget all the math. And I said, well, what gear's in the car? He said, well, I, I don't know. And at that time, I think we were running like a 350 gear. I said, do the math. 350 gear, 8,200 RPM, or, you know, whatever it all worked out to. I said, that's like 200 miles per hour. I said, you were just going too damn fast. <laughs> we were fast. I mean, this, this is, these are the cool things that you can go back on, and this is what I love about having youth in the sport today and, and, and why when a young guy comes in, I try not to give him too much of my own opinions or, or thoughts on my past experiences because the fact that they want to push the limits and take it further, and maybe it is possible, maybe it's not. Uh, and, and so back then... We had a good, you know, fast race car that I, I felt like with the things that we would typically do for qualifying to gain a little bit of grip that, that I was going to be able to to either hold it wide open, get closer to wide open than I had in practice. But, again, this is where experience comes in. Track heats up, no cars on track, all of a sudden lose a little bit of grip. Even though the car may have been slightly better, the track conditions weren't. And pretty sure I backed it in the fence that day. The green flew over the Miller Genuine Draft 400 with Brett Bodine on the pole. Set on the pole, we were so good during practice. I I, I just felt like, man, I'm, I'm going to get me a, a, a big track win today. You know, I won at Wilkesboro, but I just felt really good about Michigan. But boy, it didn't last long. It just, I think the second lap. Uh, we had an engine issue. Yeah, Barney, I think uh, they've lost the water out of it. I think they probably look like right just about the start finish line. Something starts spraying out from under the left front, and uh, they say they think they've blown all the water out of it. A heartbreak there for the team that started the day on the bush pole. In the engine blocks back then, uh, to get into the water jackets of the block, they used what they called a freeze plug. And uh, coming down the front straightaway, that let go and it pushed all the water out of the engine while we were leading 
Uh, fortunately, it was on the straightaway. didn't cause any accident or any problem for anybody else, but we were out of the race. And boy, what a... You want to, I was really disappointed because I, I felt so good about that day. Mark Martin, still steaming over the practice shunt with Earnhardt, took early command of the clash and stayed out front for most of the day. Mark Martin, who a lot of folks said will probably run as hard this weekend here at Michigan as he has run all year. So I kind of feel like Mark's been a little frustrated in the early going of the season. He's had a good car, but he's had his problems. I don't know how to explain it. I was racing angry. I was uh, very, very fierce, somewhat bitter. I was bitter, obviously, about Earnhardt messing with me because he had always treated me with so much respect. Uh, And I was bitter, you know, about that we weren't winning more races. And so I was racing with a lot of fire right then. Martin led 141 of the 200 circuits, but ran out of fuel in the closing laps, relegating him to a sixth-place finish. The leader is off the pace on the back straightaway. Mark Martin is off the pace. He's down on the safety apron in turn three. Mark Martin is coasting around towards the pit lane. Well, Mark Martin's sitting here kind of resting or relaxing, I guess, (laughs) somewhat. Mark, you had a heck of a run. That uh, car really, really worked today. Yeah, yeah, it was super. I really got to give uh, the credit to that Valvoline team. They they fixed that wreck back just as good as new. It's a, you know, they're just doing such great work for me right now, putting me in race cars uh, that I'm comfortable, you know, showing what I can do. And uh, I like to give the credit to the team and the cars because when I'm in a sorry car, I run sorry. So it's got to be the car because... You know, I think we ran great, and so obviously it's a great car. In the end, it was Ricky Rudd pushing the fuel mileage and winning the Miller 400. For the first time in 1993, Hendrick Motorsports is heading back to victory lane. Ricky Rudd through turn number four, back to the stripe with cars slowing everywhere, running out of fuel. Rudd goes the distance to win the Miller 400. Well, I guess hard to believe that we're going to win it this way. You know, uh, we got one at Dover on fuel mileage last year, and we got this one today, you know, Mark was definitely the strongest car by far. We had nothing for them at all. Uh, feel sorry for them guys, but our guys worked awful hard on fuel mileage. I guess the tortoise and the hare, you know, we couldn't outrun them, so we outlasted them. You know, the only thing I really recall about Michigan is uh, I always liked going there, first of all, and it was a fun track to drive. And that was my last year at Hendricks. I remember that. And uh, it was exciting because it was our last last time at Hendricks. And, you know, to run that well, I know we ran well all day. With, I, don't think, I don't know if we sat on the pole or not that day, but I just remember we had a strong run. We always ran well at Michigan with the Hendricks cars. And so, you know, getting to Victory Lane was that much sweet because it's kind of a little bit emotional. You know, it might be our, be our last time in Victory Lane as a, as a team. It was kind of kind of mixed emotions that day. I remember that. For Rusty Wallace, a fifth-place result in the Irish Hills ended a streak devoid of top 20 finishes, dropping him from first to fifth in the standings following the harrowing crash at Talladega. Rusty Wallace now starting to rumble just a bit more in his Pontiac. He told me this morning, standing under an umbrella, warding off the rain, that after four difficult runs here in the last handful of weeks, he said he's ready. He said his sponsor sponsors this race. His car owner owns this racetrack. He said, man, I need a good run today, and this car is just getting the job done. Well, getting to Michigan and finally getting back on track with no problems and no issues, that was a huge uh, run for us. You know, I mean, we're here... You, most people would think a top five is just okay. Uh, but after, you know, winning all those races early in the year and then having all these problems and, and, and trying to recover and seem like we can't, 
to finally get to Michigan and get a good drop top five and start gaining some points again was a big race for us. It really was. Even though it was only a top five, and a top five in most people's minds is fantastic, but to us, we want to win, you know? So uh, in order to get that uh, good solid run with no problems, it was, it was a step in the right direction, that's for sure. After the checkers in Michigan, the Cup Series took a week off before heading back to the World Center of Racing, Daytona International Speedway, for the Midsummer Classic, the Pepsi 400. Dale Earnhardt and his RCR team were well in command of the standings at the halfway point of the season. Crew Chief Andy Petrie recalls a vacation with Dale before heading to Florida. No, I remember the week before that uh, I actually kind of went on a little mini vacation with Dale and Teresa over to the Bahamas on their boat. And, um, and, and was not in the shop that week. And it, it really, I was so uncomfortable doing it. And uh, Dale said, I just need, had good guys back there. Don't worry about it. You know, just have a little fun. You know, but I just, it just I was miserable. I was not at the shop. We were going to just show up at the track. It'd be the only time I think in my career as a crew chief that I did that. And, uh, and then we won. And he, you know, I'm sure it was something he did. Because, you know, we had good cars, but it was just, when we went to those restrictor plate races, you know, it was just all him. Leading into the Daytona weekend, Terry Labonte announced that he would be leaving Billy Hagen Racing and moving to Hendrick Motorsports at the end of the season. I had decided I was gonna gonna leave the team I was with, which was Hagen's team. I knew some guys that worked at Hendrick, and they, they called me and said, "Hey, you need to come down here and talk to these guys." I said, "Well, I, you know, I don't know." I said, "No, really." So they kept calling me. We talked to her three times. So they called me and said, "Hey, I want you to come down here and check out her place." And so I went down there, and Jimmy Johnson, who was the team manager back then, not not Jimmy Johnson, the driver, the Jimmy Johnson, the team manager. I met him, Randy Dorton, and Gary Dehart, and they gave me the tour of the facility. And then about halfway through the tour, Rick got there and saw the rest rest of the, the, the tour, and you know talked with him a little bit. And I remember going back the next day uh, to. Uh, to our shop, and Pete Wright was my crew chief, and uh, Pete works at Hendricks now, as a matter of fact, but and I told him, I said, man, I said, you will not believe how good we are doing with what we have to work with compared to what I saw, you know. And I knew they had the part, the pieces and the people to win a championship, you know, and they just hadn't done it yet. And I said, man, I should know that. I mean, that's that's a, the place. And if you can go there, you know, I think you got a chance to win a championship. Returning to the scene of his Daytona 500 victory five months earlier, Dale Jarrett was full of optimism for the Summer Classic. I know I can remember going back there because obviously it was my first time going back as a winner uh, at, at that track. And... Uh, in the same season and, and I know that we had great high hopes uh, for it and, and I know that we ran uh, very well I can even tell you right now where I finished in the race I know we were competitive and, and I I remember thinking uh, this is what it feels like coming back to a place uh, in the same season that, that you won uh, the previous race there and oh yeah it was the Daytona 500 and you know we, we went in there with Everybody knowing that every time you went to a Daytona or Talladega for a race, that Dale Earnhardt was the person to beat. But 
we also had established because we had run well uh, even in 1992 at Daytona and Talladega uh, and then winning the 500 we had established ourselves as uh, a team that everybody had to look at and that was a different field so I, I enjoyed that that people were paying attention and you go out to practice uh, and, and run in the draft you had people looking to to get behind you and want to work with you and that was a different field and, and I really appreciated that. The fastest 400 mile race run in NASCAR is under green as they take the green flag and head down to turn number one. After the green flew over the Pepsi 400, Kyle Petty fell ill, forcing the third generation driver to retire early. Well, Kyle Petty is out of the car. They pull the car in behind the pit lane and uh, he's laying back here. And just, he's just too hot. They're putting some ice around him. He should be all right getting a little bit of oxygen. Did I pass out when the race was over? I think here's what happened. Um, if we go back to that time, I, I think I'd gotten just uh, the inner panels. And, and listen, slight carbon monoxide poisoning was not an issue. You know what I mean? I, I, I know that sounds crazy to the layman, to regular people, but, but getting out and having headaches and having carbon monoxide poisoning or getting out and throwing up and stuff, that, that was not a, uh, you just, it's part of it. It's part of it. Um, I think the problem was at the same time, I smoked. I was smoking a little bit, too. So um, the combination of the carbon monoxide poisoning and needing a cigarette when the race was over with, I passed out in the middle of the front stretch, I think. And they took me to the infield, and they gave me some oxygen, and that was in I, I will tell you this. It might have been during the 92 season. I was in an airplane, and I'm reading in, in a private plane flying with two guys, and I look up, and the pilot's asleep, and... I walk up to the front of the plane. It's a little King Air, and I walk up, and I ask the other guy, I said, hey, is everything all right? And he's like, yeah, man, I just feel a little lightheaded. And um, we had lost some pressure in the plane, and they were beginning to kind of fade a little bit because the oxygen level was changing in the plane. But my oxygen level in my blood was so low that it hadn't affected me yet because I had so much carbon monoxide in my in my system that it hadn't affected me. So we got down to another level, and my guy over here in the left seat, he wakes up, and we fly on to where we're going. So it was good. So sometimes it's good to have carbon monoxide in your system if you can stay awake. As the checkers flew in Florida, it was Dale Earnhardt out front for his fourth win of the season. side-by-side -side battle for second is going to take place, and that will leave Earnhardt all alone to cruise to a win by a car length and a half. His second Daytona win, Marlin finishes second. What makes it so exciting to win a race at Daytona? Well, it, uh, you know, it's a tough place to win a race. I've tried to win the Daytona 500 here, and it seems like I can win some other races, but all, all them guys behind you want to do the same thing, and you got five or six or 10, 15 guys behind you all plotting to get by you, and they're plotting to get by each other, and it's really tough to run strategy on that last couple laps, and we're fortunate they all, we could hold them off, and then when our car pushed, that enabled them to get to us, and... You know, I, I, I don't know. I, we just love Lucky, and I'm glad we didn't tear this car up. I think we're going to try to put Neil Bonnet in it at Tal Talladega. The inaugural Cup Series event at the New Hampshire International Speedway lined up next on the schedule. Kyle Petty remembers how the fans were appreciative to finally have a Cup event at their racetrack. The Bear family is a, was an amazing family, an amazing, you know, just good, good people. But the fans are such good people and still are. Still are. I don't think they've ever, I don't think the fans in that area have ever changed. And that's what I will always remember about that race uh, and about that area is how, how rabid the fans are, um, how they pull for their drivers and believe in their drivers. Uh, but at the same time, how they just want to see racing. 
they are just race fans. And there, there's a difference, man. We go, you go places where people have, people have, and fans have, they feel entitled. Yeah, we we deserve this race. You know what I mean? Those people up there have always felt like, man, it's an honor to have you guys up here. It's it's a big deal. So for me, that that's what I took away that first time. There's a couple races. Texas is another place, and, and and I know I'm getting off subject here, but Texas is another place. The only racetrack that I've ever been to in my whole life is Texas, where the fans will say, "How do you like our racetrack?" and they call it our racetrack. You know what I mean? That's a that's a weird. You don't hear people in Daytona say, "Hey, you like our racetrack? Come down here to our racetrack." You don't hear people in Charlotte. You don't hear people in Bristol, Texas, when they built that place. And that's kind of the way New Hampshire was. They were, they wanted you to come to their backyard. A Shemung, New York native, Brett Bodine spent much of his early career racing around New England. I love New Hampshire. I, you know, New England was my second home. That's where, that's really where my racing career took off. Uh, racing the, the modifies in the Northeast had a tremendous fan following up there. Uh, in 84, won the track championship at Stafford Speedway, probably the, the most prestigious track in New England, and just won a bunch of races in Maine and Connecticut and, and, and all around that region. And to go back up there and kind of show all my fans, you know, you were part of getting me here you were part of getting me to the cup series and and to get to see him and and have them enjoy watching me race in the cup series was was special to me a couple of future stars made their first start at new hampshire that weekend including south boston virginia's jeff burton who had an eventful first day at the office starting in one car and finishing in another well the 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 reason i drove that race is because my uh, my car owner at the time phil martasi he was uh you know, we were in the Xfinity Series and, and racing full-time in that. And he had made comment that he was going to, wanted to run a cup race. And he was looking for a driver to do it. And I was like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> why won't you let me do it? And and uh, so I put a little pressure on him. And ultimately, he decided to uh, that, that that was going to work. And uh, he actually leased a, uh, a car from, from Jack Roush. Uh, we went up there, and I think we qualified top five. Uh, I think it was top five. I think maybe it was six. Anyway, we qualified pretty well, and I had a really good car going into the race, and I wrecked it on about lap four or five. Jeff Burton spins on the outside of the racetrack. Jenny Shader works the inside lane. He'll go to the inside. Ernie Irvin is collected now. Michael Walter barely misses the spinning car of Jeff Burton. Uh, he was my spotter, and he said clear, and I learned right then that I didn't care. don't care who your spotter is. When he says clear and you're not, and you wreck, it's your fault because you're the one that's got to go to the infield care center. <laughs> so I, I, uh, it was an eventful day. I... I uh, had a really good qualifying session. We we had a really good car going in the race. I wrecked early in the race, and then uh, Hut Strickland uh, got sick during the race, and I finished my first race driver for Junior Johnson, uh, replacing Hut Strickland, which they pulled out of the car. And another lesson for me, I learned really quickly that if you, uh, at that level, uh, there wasn't a lot of compassion, <laughs> they pulled him out of the car and threw somebody else in and, and uh, just kept digging. So it was, uh, it was an eventful day. After starting on the pole and finishing second in Saturday's NASCAR Bush Series race, Joe Nemechek rolled out to the grid Sunday morning for his first cup clash. Well, New Hampshire had been a, a really good racetrack for myself in the past. Uh, from our previous, I guess, two or three times we had been there, we were always running up in the front. Uh, won there in 92 in 
again, the uh, I think with our own team, we put our own car together here at, here at Nemco Motorsports. First time we built a cup car. Uh, got an engine from, I think it came out of Michigan. It, one of the Chevrolet guys, it was people that were doing some R&D for him, gave us a motor to run. And, and just went up there and tried to make the field. And as I recall, I can't remember where we qualified, but I know Jeff Burton was there also, and we both qualified well. And I think we ended up breaking a motor during the race. But uh, it was fun. You know, New Hampshire, uh, you know, back in the day, if you could make your car drive really good, and it's still that way today, but, again, make your car drive good, uh, you could run well in... Uh, it's just one of those tracks that I feel really, really good about. The green flew for the Slick 5300 with Mark Martin on the pole. But despite the speed in his Roush Racing Ford, Martin started the 300-lap contest with reservations about the flat mile. Let's go back trackside again and visit with Dick Brooks and Mark Martin. Mark, like we said earlier, there's not anything that you can take away from some people. There's some things you can't plan on doing, but being the first pole setter ever for Winston Cup on a racetrack like this is uh, something that... We'll stay with you for life, I guess. It was all right. I mean, I, I thought it was okay. Um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't over the moon about it. I was not a fan of flat tracks. I did not like Martinsville. I did, however, like North Wilkesboro. But, I, you know, it was, it wasn't my most exciting um, racetrack. And, and, and I know we sat on the pole, and I know we led uh, the race, and I know we ran really good. You know, I don't think that everybody learned about track position being so critical, you know, uh, back then yet. But Rusty got ahead of me uh, for whatever reason, and he won. And I know for a fact that Steve and, and my guys, and especially Steve, you know, felt like that I laid down on him, you know. Uh, he was frustrated, too. We weren't winning, um, but it was it was one of those things where, you know, we were already starting to see track position stuff. I was already in '93 at Martinsville. I told I told my guys I said I'm telling you when I get behind cars, I get tighter. Nobody would have believed that. They were just starting to talk about aero tight, you know, in a mile and a half, but I. I knew it and believed it because I always believed if a car was moving, aero mattered. Uh, that's what I remember about that race. I remember running, running good, and I remember I never want to disappoint anyone. I did my best, and I was satisfied with second, but I dis- but uh, Steve was disappointed in me. For Dale Earnhardt, a 26th-place result came with a silver lining, as Richard Childress Racing crew chief Andy Petrie remembers. This one, we had a problem with a master cylinder reservoir that leaked. It, it cracked, and we lost all the fluid. And he ran more than half of the race with no brakes, zero brakes. And you can imagine how hard that is at New Hampshire. Uh, I don't even know if they'd let you run that way now, <laughs> but if they knew you didn't have brakes. But we had zero brakes uh, for, for at least half of the race, maybe more. But we, you know what? He learned a few things that, that day on how, how to drive the car with no brakes. And then we, he, I think he used some of that technique 
later on that that he learned from that. So you know, even a ba- you can take some good things out of a bad day, and that was a terrible day for. Him. In the final laps, Davy Allison appeared to be on his way to a second 1993 victory, but a late race caution changed everything. Caution on the speedway here at lap number 268 as the caution flies for the sixth time this afternoon. Fuel will not be a problem with only 32 laps to go, and tires will carry everybody the distance. It's going to be a shootout the rest of the way. Robert Yates Racing Crew Chief, Larry McReynolds. So the the race at at New Hampshire in 93, again, we were leading it late in the race, leading it, leading it, leading it. As long as we don't have an issue and as long as a caution doesn't come out, I don't see how we can not win this race. And, of course, we're sitting there, who in the world would have ever dreamed that was going to be Davey Allison's last race, that roughly 24 hours later he was going to be involved in a, in a severe helicopter crash. But the spotter had told me there's some debris on the backstretch. And what it was, Michael Waltrip was driving the 30 car, and you have these aluminum hubcaps that are held on by three set screws. And I don't know if it was a front hubcap or a rear hubcap. I'm going to say it was a front because rear one comes off. That's what holds the axle in. So I guess his hubcap, this little hubcap, not much bigger than a hockey puck, came out and it was bouncing around the back straightaway. And just about the time NASCAR said put it out, you know, I was scanning NASCAR, somebody hit that hubcap and knocked it off the racetrack, knocked it out into the infield. So if it, if it just... A millisecond or two sooner, had that happened, that caution would not have come out. Now, you know, we don't live in a what-if world, but that caution would not have come out, and had that not went caution-free, Davey Allison would have certainly won the very last race he ever participated in. After the hectic round of yellow flag pit stops, Rusty Wallace took command as the green flew, driving his Team Penske Pontiac home to victory lane. Rusty Wallace out of turn number four, about to put his name in the history books as winning the first Winston Cup race ever here at the New Hampshire International Speedway. He takes the checkered flag. Coming across second is going to be Mark Martin. Davey Allison will finish third. Winning a race at any track that's brand new to the circuit and being the inaugural winner is absolutely huge. And that race right there, that was like you hit a reset button for me, and that was the beginning of the year again because we got everything right. We went up there and we tested, and we really got the car handling really well, I remember. I remember in practice started during the race, and I remember being fast in practice, but then I remember going into qualifying with so much confidence, like, man, I am going to really put it on him. And I overdrove turn three, slid up the racetrack, I remember, and I think I started 33rd in a race, if my memory serves me. But boy, after that race started, I just started carving my way through the field and took off and dominated the thing and won the inaugural race at New Hampshire. And they gave you a gigantic big wreath, I remember, and a big bottle uh, as a trophy. And that doggone wreath hung in one of the restaurants up there, which one of my favorite places to go to back then. It hung in there for almost 15 years before it finally fell apart. But uh, the uh, win in the inaugural race in New Hampshire was a huge deal. You know, I mean, to me, it was probably almost as big as when uh, I, I remember Jeff Gordon won the inaugural race at the Brickyard. That was just a big feel for me. And it was, just, it was a big short track. And I'm the short track guy, right? And so it, it made me feel equally as good as some other races that people have won on inaugural tracks. The win was Rusty's fifth of the season, ending a two-month dry spell following the horrific crash and broken wrist at Talladega. 
Join us next week for MRN Presents the 1993 season 25 years later as we remember the tragic loss of another prominent figure in the sport. We had made the executive decision between Robert, myself, and involving the crew that we would not go to Pocono. Uh, We just didn't feel like it would be fair to whoever drove that car because we would not have our heart in it. We would not have our minds in it. We would just be there. Until then, I'm Susie Armstrong. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The 1993 season, 25 years later, was written and produced by Rich Colbert. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. This NASCAR season, Toyota Racing isn't looking for just anyone to join the team. No, we're looking for bankers, the ones who are open on Sundays. So if you live for the gravity-defying 31-degree banks like this one on turn four at Daytona, then we want you. Be part of the action at toyota.com slash racing. Toyota, let's go places. NASCAR is a registered trademark of National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, Inc.